0: Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we can look to you, find our assurance, find our hope, find our Savior. We pray that you would bless us, Lord, with your presence as we pause for a few moments to reflect on you as our creator God. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's do a brief review. They say that repetition deepens impression. So let's turn to our scripture reading that was just read, Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. In Revelation chapter 14, there are three angels with three distinct messages, that is to go to the entire world before Jesus comes the second time, And we've been focusing on the first angel's message. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. We've said that this text, this message given by the first angel, has four components. Fear God, the first component, give glory to him. For the hour of His judgment has come. And the last part is a call to worship our Creator. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. We've said that this, this text, this last part of the passage, the fourth component, to worship our Creator... Is a direct reference back to the book of Exodus. So let's turn there. This is familiar to us as Seventh day Adventists, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. I'm assuming many of us can quote this by heart. It's the only commandment that begins with the word remember. And scholars of the book of Revelation believe that this reference in Revelation chapter 14 to worship the Creator is a clarion call back to the fourth commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8-11. through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who's within your gates. For in six days... The Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. We stated last Sabbath that there is this parallel between Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 verse 11 which we've just read and Revelation chapter 14 verse 7 and I've highlighted the parallels there you can see the exact same order as referenced in Revelation chapter 14 verse 7 made heaven earth and sea one verb three nouns exact same order and Bible scholars believe that when the book of Revelation is quoting Or alluding to the Old Testament, they are alluding to the entire context of that passage. And the context in this case is the part that I've underlined here on the screen. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea. In other words, part of the first angel's message that is to go to the entire world before Jesus comes is a call to worship the creator god that created the earth in six literal days now we also said that at the time that this message is commencing that there's another theory that is being espoused in July of 1844, Darwin completed a 189 page handwritten manuscript summarizing his species theory. Scholars refer to it as Darwin's 1844 sketch. Thus, this is according to John Baldwin, when Darwin in his 1844 manuscript sketch suggests that major biological forms developed over millions of years, God in the same year sends a special message to the world that he created the basic life forms in six days, not millions of years. A call to worship our creator just when the theory of evolution is becoming accepted and the norm in the scientific community. Last Sabbath, I had this artist depiction of a theologian his name is Frederick Schleiermacher. And when I studied at the seminary, I changed degrees from a master's in divinity to a master of arts in theology. I went from a practical degree to a not so practical degree. And I had the privilege of focusing on modern and postmodern theologians that were seminal thinkers. And Frederick Schleimacher was a seminal thinker. Matter of fact, he's known as the father of modern Protestant liberalism. He was the seminal thinker that formed a certain way of thinking specifically as it relates to science. And in 1829, he published his famous Pact with Science. Because Schleimacher was trying to come up with a way to deal with the conflict between science and scripture. And he's famous for this notion of saying theologians should let rocks be rocks and should let God be God. In other words, the Bible is not a science book. We should let the Bible do its thing and let science do its thing. And what Schleiermacher did was he was also the father of modern hermeneutics. He came up with this idea that we need to interpret the Bible in a different way. He said that the Bible is not about history, it's not about facts, it's really about the experience that we get, the feeling that we get from experiencing the Bible, the Word of God. But it is not about facts, it's not about history, and it's not about science. So you can see that even in the 1800s, there were individuals like the theologian Frederick Schleimacher that was trying to deal with this conflict between Scripture and science. And we also quoted from this man, who Rudolf Boltzmann, in the early 1900s, was also trying to deal with this conflict scripture and science, and we quoted this in our series, or our sermon on the resurrection, we cannot use electric lights and radios, and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means, and at the same time, believe in the spirit and wonder of the New Testament. He said, look, we have all these technological advances, all these things in the scientific world that are being discovered, we can't read the New Testament the same way. So, Rudolf Bultmann said that the Bible was a myth. It was a story. It was an allegory. And these were attempts by the pre-modern mind to understand Scripture. They did not have the enlightenment that we do today. So, they came up with these stories to reveal a deeper truth. He said that these were not to be taken literally, but we're to go to the deeper essence of these stories. And he espoused this idea of demythalization. In other words, this was Boltman's position. The resurrection is a myth. The virgin birth is a myth. Every miracle in the Bible is a myth. Why are these things a myth? Because they conflict with science. And he also said, the literal six-day creation account is a myth as well. Now, Rudolf Bultmann was a systematic theologian. In other words, he built a coherent theology that was consistent. Now, one thing that I will credit to Rudolf Bultmann is his consistency. He goes all the way down the line and says, every miracle, every supernatural event in Scripture that conflicts with science is not true. It's a myth. It's an allegory. It's not to be taken literally. Now, when I was in the lower 48 uh, at a particular church, I had a visitor that would come regularly to our community of faith. He was not a member, and he engaged me in a conversation. He said, Pastor, I want to talk to you because he took issue that I gave, which is nothing new. <laughs> Welcome to my world, right? And so I said, hey, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm not uh, infallible. I'm up for dialogue and discussion. So we sat down, and he opened by saying, Pastor, I disagree with the literal interpretation of Genesis. He said, I don't believe in a literal six-day creation on the basis of science, I said, well, I understand where you're coming from, given that a literal six-day creation is considered a pseudoscience by the scientific community, including intelligent design. And I said, what about the virgin birth? Do you believe in the virgin birth? And he said, Pastor, yes. I believe in the virgin birth. I said, on what basis? He said, on the basis of faith. I said, wait a minute. I said, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're going to reject the literal six-day creation on the basis of science, you've got to also reject the virgin birth on the basis of science. Because look, evolution is a theory. How reproduction works is a fact. It's a proven fact that can be reproduced in the laboratory, that it takes a sperm and an egg for there to be conception. And the whole idea that a virgin conceived from the Holy Ghost and that conception, that child, is the son of God? Wow, that sounds like a fairy tale to me. That Conflicts with science furthermore the resurrection the raising of Lazarus from the dead all of these Conflict with science so if you go in this route of Rejecting the literal six-day creation on the basis of science. I would argue That you have to go down the road of Boltzmann's Consistency and systematic theology of saying that the resurrection is just a story The virgin birth is just a story. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is just a story as well. And if you don't have the historicity of the virgin birth and the resurrection, according to Paul, if Christ is not really risen, then we above all men are most miserable and our gospel is worthless. The question is, Is there room for faith in science? Now, in the 20th century, there have been developments specifically in the realm of quantum theory. Quantum theory has to do with subatomic particles, neutrons, protons, and electrons. And I want to read to you, just in case you wonder if quantum theory is a legitimate science. This is from the physicist Roland Ohms. And he says, this theory, quantum theory, penetrates reality to a depth our senses cannot take us. Its laws are universal, and they rule over the world of objects so familiar to us, we who inhabit the world cannot make our own vision prevail over those arrogant laws, whose concepts seem to flow from an order higher than the one inspired by the things we can touch, see, and say, with ordinary words I think I skipped this quote quantum theory is a primary branch of physics and as such is brilliantly successful it has given us the laser the electron microscope the transistor the superconductor and nuclear power quantum theory works it has shown itself to be a credible theory over and over and over Again, now I want you to see how some quantum physicists describe quantum theory This is from the physicist Brian Greene But what appears certain is that no matter how you interpret quantum mechanics it is undeniably It undeniably shows that the universe is founded on principles that from the standpoint of our day-to-day experience are bizarre he describes quantum theory as bizarre. This is from David Douche, an Oxford physicist. It is the explanation and the only one that is attainable of a remarkable and counterintuitive reality. Now, let me translate that for you. These guys are basically saying that quantum theory is irrational, illogical, And Nothing like we experience in our day-to-day lives. In other words, when you get down to the science of how protons electrons and even light functions It is not logical now, I don't have time to go into Schrodinger's cat or Copenhagen's parallel universe theory, but let's talk a little bit about light In scientific experiments light Behaves both like a particle and a wave. Now, for laymen like myself, they were like, oh, so what? I mean, that's a big deal. But that's basically like saying you're both dead and alive at the same time. These things are two mutually exclusive things. And scientists, when they look at these experiments, they are befuddled. They can't understand how something as fundamental as light can be both a wave and a particle. And I'm just going to move on. This is from Werner Heisenberg, who's one of the founders of quantum physics. He was conducting these subatomic experiments, and afterwards, he takes a walk in the park, reflecting on these experiments. And I want you to notice what he said. Can nature be as absurd as it seems to us in these atomic experiments? We are no longer living in the Newtonian world where everything makes sense and comes together in a nice little package. We are living in the quantum theory world where when you get down to the nitty-gritty, reason, logic and rationality seem to go out the window. And here is a thinker reflecting on quantum theory. And notice what he says, irrational Illogical? Unbelievable? Beyond common sense? Sounds like the charge is leveled against Christianity, not science. 20th century science, far from squeezing out faith, has stretched reality so far and in so many different directions that it has made more, not less room for faith. In other words, quantum theory requires faith. (laughs) The scientific theory that is promulgated as the new scientific model that is contradicting the Newtonian model requires faith. Now, there's a fascinating book that I quoted from last week. This is from Thomas S. Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and this book has made so much impact, and I guarantee if you've never heard of this book, your life has been impacted by this book. How many of you have ever heard or ever used the term a paradigm shift? Ah, he invented it. His book was the first time the term paradigm shift was used. This book has dramatically impacted society, and this is from Stanford University, reflecting on the legacy of Thomas Samuel Kuhn, it says, is one of the most influential philosophers of science of the 20th century, and perhaps the most influential, His 1962 book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, is one of the most cited academic books of all time. His account of the development of science held that science enjoys periods of stable growth punctuated by revisionary revolution. Now, let me parse that out for you. Look at this term right here, revisionary revolutions. The whole thesis of Thomas Thomas Kuhn's perspective in his book is that science is not static, science is dynamic. What does that mean? In other words, science is changing. He shows Newtonian physics held serve for 300 years. It was considered science, still is science, but it is, was considered the only determiner of ultimate reality until 1905. Einstein came up with the theory of relativity And not only did the theory of relativity upend the Newtonian model, it contradicted it. So according to Thomas Kuhn, he says, look, we need to be very careful how tightly we hold to scientific theories. Because look, Newton's worldview was the science for 300 years until quantum theory came along. Science is dynamic. It's not static, and the implication of his book is this. What if, and it is very likely, that if time lasts long enough and there's another 300 years, what if there's another theory by a brilliant man that shows that Einstein's worldview and the Newtonian worldview are incomplete in determining ultimate reality? It is highly likely. And I've quoted from this article reflecting on Thomas Kuhn's impact. It's kind of long, but I want you to show you uh, in place in the ongoing dialogue. This was a revolutionary concept that came in, the philosophy of science. But if rival paradigms, Newton's and Einstein's, are really incommensurable, then doesn't that imply that scientific revolutions must be based at least in part on irrational grounds. Think about the logic, I mean, just what this is saying. It's saying that science is showing that it's based on irrational grounds. I mean, that sounds like what people say about Christians. Kuhn's book spawned a whole industry of commentary, interpretation, and exegesis. His emphasis essentially triggered the growth of a new academic discipline, the sociology of science, in which researchers began to examine the scientific disciplines much as anthropologists studied exotic tribes, and which science was regarded not as a sacred untouchable product of the Enlightenment, but just another subculture. What is that saying? Why does science get a pass from any sort of scrutiny when there are revisionary revolutions that take place? Science should not get a free pass, but should be analyzed and scrutinized just like every other discipline and this is the point that Thomas Kuhn is making and this is the ongoing contemporary dialogue that is taking place right now does science define ultimate reality and Thomas Kuhn says no it is an attempt it solves problems but the model is dynamic and continually changing the preface to this book is fascinating It's written by another author, and the author says, what about evolution? Is evolution going through its own revision? And what if, in another 300 years, evolution meets its Albert Einstein? These are fair questions that are being asked by brilliant thinking people and Thomas Kuhn is no neophyte intellectually. He's a physicist that got his Ph.D. from Harvard. Brilliant man. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 115, 116. God is the foundation of everything. All true science is in harmony with his works. John Pauline. The end-time encounter between two groups of ideas will be a battle between the Scriptures and perception between reality as experienced by the five senses and ultimate reality as revealed by God himself. This is the battle in the end of time. And this book is what theologians call special revelation. You have natural revelation, which is in the natural world. But this is special revelation in that it is specific and detailed. You will not come up with the notion of the Trinity from looking at nature. The only place you can get it is through special revelation. And the Bible indicates that it has something to say about origins. And the question is whose take are you going to accept? Special revelation? or a theory based on natural revelation. The decision is ours. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 13 through 14, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God. Here's a picture that the Bible gives, and it says how many unclean spirits are going out? Three, and the Bible says they are the spirits of demons. Demons are fallen angels. In Revelation chapter 14, you have three angels that are flying in the midst of heaven, having a message that is to go to the entire world before Jesus comes, and yet in Revelation chapter 16, it portrays a picture of three fallen angels With a message that is to be delivered to the entire world. What we need to realize is that everyone is going to be spiritual in the end of time. Everyone. Everyone is going to be worshiping. And according to the book of Revelation, worship is going to be a central theme. Revelation chapter 13 verse 4, people are going to worship the beast. And in Revelation chapter 14 verse 6, the Creator. This is the fundamental issue in the end of time. Everyone is going to be worshiping, but everyone is going to be worshiping a different version of God. The God that creates in six literal days, or the God that creates through a process that we call the theory of evolution. Remember Cain and Abel. worship a key issue. Both Cain and Abel were worshiping, but only one type of worship was accepted. The same issue will be in the end of time. And in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13 and 14, I have another word that is put there. It says, for they are the spirits of demons Or highlighted, for they are the spirits of demons which perform signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God. There is going to be a gathering in the end of time, a convergence, bringing people together. On the other side, there's going to be a convergence and a gathering of bringing people together to worship the Creator. But we see on the other side, there is going to be also a gathering, a coalescing, a polarizing between two distinct groups. Now, in order for this group to gather, notice from the mouth of the beast out of the mouth of the false prophet and out of the mouth of the dragon, so there's going to be this coalescing, a worldwide unity that is going to take place where people are going to come together. And the only way that they can come together is if there is a minimizing of truth and an uplifting of truth. Of a new type of spirituality and a new spiritual unity. That is the only way that you're going to bring all of these different religions together, minimize truth, and uplift a new type of spiritual unity. And ironically, the postmodern worldview is the exact culture that can make Revelation chapter 16 possible. This is from John Baldwin. Professor Emeritus from Andrews Theological Seminary he got his PhD from the University of Chicago. Revelation chapter 14 verse 7 responds decisively to the heart of postmodernism. Postmodernism exi- insists that objective unchanging truth might not exist. By contrast, Revelation chapter 14, verse seven itself constructs a single, six, contiguous, creative day creation worldview as being valid to the coming of Christ and beyond. As a result, as a result, it serves as a single, objecting, objective, overarching truth, or unchanging meta-narrative, thus demonstrating that such truth is possible in a post. Modern era. In other words, is a literal six day creation relevant in a postmodern context? According to Revelation, absolutely yes. It may be unpopular, it may not be politically correct, it may be scoffed at by the entire scientific community, but a reading of Revelation. Chapter 14 indicates that this is the message that God is calling his people to do, to point them to the Creator God. Jesus made this statement that is unacceptable to the postmodern culture. John chapter 14, verse 6 Jesus answered and said, I am the way, singular, definite article, and the truth, singular, definite article and the life, singular, definite article. Notice he did not say, I am a way. That's postmodern. I am a truth, and I am a life. In other words, there's many, many different ways. But Jesus claimed exclusivity. He said, I am the only way. I am the truth. This is the only way. In other words, Jesus did not only assume the reality of objective truth. He said, look, he is the only way to understanding Objective ultimate reality. A bold statement by Jesus. Jesus' statement is ringing out from the first century to the 21st century in a time when the very existence of truth is being questioned. Jesus is saying, Truth is not a theory, it's not just a theory, it's not just a concept, it's not just a proposition that you think about. Jesus said, I am the truth. In other words, truth is his person. Get to know Jesus, and you get to know the truth. John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus gives the theology of what true worship is like. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Notice the tension between these two realities. We have a worldwide movement today that says, look, we need to come together in spirit, but let's get rid of that. That's postmodernism. Jesus is saying we need both. We need both the spirit and the truth. And sometimes we get into trouble because we emphasize one to the negation of the other. I've been in communities of faith where they supported truth but had very little of the spirit. Unloving in supporting the truth. I've been in other communities of faith where they say, "Look, the truth doesn't matter, let's just be loving." But Jesus said we need both. We need the Spirit and the truth. And in these times, right before Jesus comes, the world is looking for a group of people that will do what Ephesians chapter 14, 4, verse 15 says. There will be a people that speak the truth in what In love. To speak the truth in love. They will not only have the truth, but they will also have the spirit of love. What the world is looking for is a people that are a witness that not only embody the message of love in word, but in life. How many of you want to be like Jesus? Amen? To speak the truth in love? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that the message that you've called us to give means that we are the laughing stock of our entire contemporary community. Much like Noah was the laughing stock of his generation much like Paul. But Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to you and to your word. Lord, we recognize that the issue in the end of time is not whether we believe in God, but whether we believe God. Do you mean what you say? Do you say what you mean? We pray that you would help us, Lord, to speak the truth, in love. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.